Let us pray. Almighty God, we thank you for your word that reveals to us your plan of redemption, your prophecies, and your promises towards us. Plant them deep within our hearts this night that they may grow forth and bear fruit in every moment of our lives and guide us evermore into that great peace which Christ has brought to us and to this whole world. And we ask this through that very same Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. For this past week, I've been listening to a dramatization of Charles Dickens' A Christmas Carol. I'm ashamed to admit it, but I've never actually read the book. I've only ever seen adaptations of it. But what I've discovered that's so lovely about this radio dramatization is it actually follows the book quite well because it inspired me to get a copy of the book and I began comparing and realized that they're literally this dramatization is word for word from the book so I've deeply enjoyed listening to it and gaining new insight into this Ebenezer Scrooge. And so who is this Ebenezer Scrooge? Well he is most certainly a wicked and vile man who is most concerned with only himself. He's the man who refuses to spend his money on anything frivolous. And in fact, he is barely willing to even spend money on things that are necessary for himself, for life. He is the very definition of a miser. He is the truest kind of miser, for he hoards his wealth for the sake of hoarding wealth sharing not even with himself the very money that he has built up and saved. A true miser that is utterly and completely turned inward on himself, but yet can't even spare his own money for himself. And in that, he is utterly miserable. Well, what's funny is that he doesn't even realize his own misery. He is indifferent to it. Even in the midst of people being happy and jolly during the Christmas season in his book, he is miserable for misery's sake without even knowing it. And his misery extends so far that his ill will is known to all. Even those who have never actually met him, they just know of him and know of that very misery that just emanates from who he is. It is only those who don't know of him that don't know what to make of this misery. Nothing pleases him, not even his own wealth. For if his own wealth pleased him, he might live in a little bit of luxury. But instead, he lives the drabbest of drab lives. And in fact, he is a complete and total slave to the uttermost. Not to his wealth, but to his very misery, to his indifference and to his hatred. His desire to make money has become all-consuming and it has eaten him alive so that not even making money brings joy. In fact, his making money is nothing but a heap of ashes in his own mouth. And his nephew Fred put it best when he related at a party that he was at that all of Scrooge's misery is of none effect to anyone save himself. His own misery redounds upon himself 
a million times over, building and building and building and leaves him in more and more and more misery toward himself and toward others. And those others are utterly indifferent to, to his attempts to make them miserable. And so that is Ebenezer Scrooge. And the whole story is about him being confronted with the reality of who he is. Confronted with his own misery and how he is the one who cultivated it. He is the one who built it up by his own actions, by his own behavior. But yet, when he is confronted with that misery and with the actual true misery that others live in, and yet with the mirth and merriness that they can have despite their unhappy circumstances, a change begins occurring. In all the adaptations I've seen, I've always thought it was the scene of him at his grave. Sorry, spoilers. Um, but it has been 179 years since the book was published. I thought it was that scene at the grave that finally began his conversion. Seeing how just utterly destitute and the mess of things he had made life. But in fact, it was earlier in the story. It was him seeing how he made a mess of his own life. Him seeing the despair that so many were in while he was merely reveling in misery. Those things, the ghost of Christmas past and the ghost of Christmas present began revealing to him the true reality of his situation. And it was only finally seeing his death that had no effect on anyone except for the family that rejoiced in his death for now they didn't have to pay him the debt that they owed. That final confrontation sealed his conversion to joy, sealed his conversion to end his selfishness, to end his conceit, to end the misery and the path that it led down. All of the earlier stuff began that walk, began changing as you listen to the story. He wants to stay in the merriness. He wants to stay with his family. He wants to go back and change the way he behaved earlier in the story and seeing his own death is what finally sealed it all for him and sent him forth that next morning in joy. So you may be asking, what, what does this have to do with this Christmas season? Well, it's not that Dickens wrote a truly, you could say, Christian story, but he wrote a story about vice and a story about virtue, which comports to Christian reality, which comports to the calling that God has placed on us the calling that he has given to us in the midst of this Christmas season. For in the midst of this Christmas season, he has dealt with that misery that we hold within ourselves. God himself has dealt with the misery we cling to, the indifference that we have that flows simply out of our very natures. And that's why those words in Luke chapter 2, verse 14 are so important for us to hear this night. Glory to God in the highest. And on earth, peace among those with whom he is pleased. Or in the traditional phrasing, and peace on earth, goodwill toward men. You see, there's a reason that there's two ways of saying that. And it's because there's a couple of different ways to translate it because of just the way the Greek manuscripts have come down to us. But it doesn't make much difference to me which way we translate it. Because the point of that passage is for us to cry out, glory to God in the highest. For us to recognize that peace has come down to earth in the birth of this Messiah, 
the Son of God in human flesh, Jesus Christ. Now that peace comes to be amongst those with whom God is pleased, with those who hear this message and who rejoice and turn to Christ. You see, peace here is that reconciliation of God and man. This peace is something outside of us. It is God declaring peace over us. And why is it that God is declaring peace over us? Because Christ has come into the world. His Son, the second person of the Holy Trinity, the eternal God, has been born in human flesh. He has come down from heaven and been enfleshed, become incarnate. And if God has become incarnate, then He is going to accomplish that redemption that will cause us to know that peace that He is declaring over the world. For that God who is enfleshed is Jesus Christ. And that God who is in flesh, that is, Jesus Christ, is going to deal with sin. He is going to deal with that which hinders us, that which has caused our misery, that which has caused our very deaths to come upon us. And so the angels cry out, Peace on earth, goodwill toward men. For with that declaration of peace from God, His goodness can be poured out upon mankind. His goodness can be poured out upon the world. His good pleasure, His good kindness, His steadfast love can be given to humanity. Because God has become man. The angels cry out, knowing and hearing of God's plan that God Himself would become part of the creation. That God would not remain aloof, that God would not remain separate but he would enter into creation by becoming a human being himself. Some medieval stories say it is that very thing that drove Satan to rebel, hearing that God would take on human nature, that God would not take on the divine nature, that God would not take on the nature of angels and lift them up into the divine life, but humanity, these wretched, physically bound, material creatures, God is choosing to love them in such a way that he would become like one of them, that he would leave the eternal abodes of heaven itself and become enfleshed in a material world and thus lift up that human nature into heaven itself, into the divine life of God, into that eternal life that forever exists, that has forever existed before anything was made. This God comes down to earth to live in our world as so many of our songs have declared, to enter into that misery, the brokenness, the despair, in order to show forth His goodwill, to show forth His good pleasure, to show forth His love, His mercy and His compassion toward the creation that He has made, His creation that Satan attempted to wrest from His hands. For as we heard in that very first reading, we heard of, Satan being cursed, that serpent being cursed for deceiving the woman, for leading the man into sin. But they still were responsible for their own actions, and they received curses as well. God declared to them that they would die in their eating of the fruit that he had said not to eat of. But in the midst of that, there, hidden away a gem 
of redemption, a gem of prophecy, a gem of promise. That the seed of the woman would bruise the serpent's head and the serpent would bruise simply his heel. Of course, hearing it phrased like that, it doesn't sound like it's that big a deal for a man to bruise a serpent's head. And yet, that bruising is the very destruction of that serpent's power over us. For that is what the seed of the woman is to do. He is to come, and he will crush and become the snake killer. He'll become the snake crusher for our sake. For it is that serpent who's led us into sin and his rebellion against God and his desire to destroy the creation and his desire to corrupt all things that God had made. God condemns him by his own self. The seed of the woman, in fact, becomes and it is truly the Son of God, the eternal second person of the Trinity, entering into humanity, entering into human life, taking on a human nature for our sake, for the sake of God's good creation, to restore it to the greatness and the goodness that it once had. And in fact, not just to that goodness and greatness that it once had, but unto a greater splendor, unto a greater greatness than we can ever imagine. That is the goal of God in Christ. To bring that perfect objective peace upon this world and to bring that goodwill toward creation in order to restore all things into a greater glory. A glory. A glory that we cannot conceive. A glory that in fact partakes of God's very glory. For He will pour His glory out upon His good creation that He has redeemed and thus pour it out upon us his people who have received this peace. The people who have trusted in Christ. The people who have clung to him. Who have seen like Ebenezer Scrooge. The results of sin. Who have seen not just the results of sin in general. But the results of their very particular sins. Who are confronted in fact. For another way that this Christmas carol depicts our Christian worldview is the fact that it is law and gospel being presented here. Scrooge is constantly confronted with his law in this story, and because of that confrontation, he is driven to cry out for mercy, to cry out for that opportunity to live a new life in light of the misery that he sees he has created for himself and that he has tried to foist upon others. And so Scrooge had that opportunity in the end to change for he had been promised that these things that he was seeing were but things that could be, things that might be, if all things continue going as they have. And he clung to that promise that he could change those things that could be into things that are better. And likewise for us, with the entrance of Jesus into this world, with the entrance of Christ himself coming and being born of Mary, and these angels crying out, peace on earth, goodwill toward men. God's goodness is made known to us. God's kindness is made known to us. And we can rejoice with those angels. We can cry out with those angels. Glory to God in the highest. And peace on earth. And goodwill toward men. Because God has accomplished a true peace for us. By becoming man. And that is the center of what we do, is the celebration of God becoming man. 
God taking on human nature for our sake, for the sake of His creation to redeem it from the sin that had entered into it. So may we rejoice, for this is a beautiful thing to hear about, that our sin, our misery, our despair is undone in Christ and God Himself coming to earth as a human being. In fact, not just as any human being, but as a very child. Being born first in order to be raised as a human being, to be raised as a man in this world, to witness the despair, to know that despair firsthand, to know the limitations of human life. God enters into human life and lifts up human nature to Himself to redeem it, to make it new. And so rejoice, my brothers and sisters. Rejoice, my beloved. For God has become man for our sake. God has become man to redeem us. God has become man to make His good will known to us. And God has become man to make His peace known to us and to give it to us in abundance. And so rejoice this night and rejoice evermore. For God has become man. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen.